It's nice to be with you tonight, especially because I've got my suite there at the end, so I'll tuck that away for later. Uh, it is a privilege to be able to come and to worship God with you. It's such a wonderful thing when we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We have God as our Father, we have Jesus as our Savior, and we have the Holy Spirit as our Helper, but we also have a big global family of brothers and sisters who know and love him also. And so I always count it a particular privilege whenever we have opportunity to go to other churches and to be able to worship with God's people there. And so please know I count it a real privilege to be with you tonight and to be able to worship God together. If you have your Bibles, if you could open them up, please, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. We live in a society that is obsessed with their health. Now, some of us may be exceptions, but the majority of people are obsessed with their health. I don't know what it is, but it seems to be the shops are riddled with vitamins that are for sale, special foods, superfoods that are going to make you better. That There's this surge all of a sudden now that it's not quite good weather, but there's a prospect of it coming that all of a sudden you see people out running the roads again. People seem to be descending upon gyms again. Uh, people want to get healthy. And yet the reality is the Bible makes clear there is a disease, a particular disease that is killing many. And unlike all of the other small issues that may add complexity to life that our radios, our TVs, our newspapers are obsessed with, this is a particular heart disease that nobody wants to talk about. And a particular type of heart disease that no amount of exercise, medical research, healthy eating can sort out. And in order to address this particular heart disease, we need to go to the only remedy that can be found, and it's found in God's Word. It's found, in fact, in this particular passage, Psalm 51. And here in Psalm 51, we have a man, King David, and he was one who needed to carry out this particular type of spiritual health check. He'd sinned. He'd slept with another man's wife. He tried to use deceit to cover it up. He'd orchestrated the murder of a man. And for one year, after that, ugly collection of sins, David just went about his business as if nothing had happened. He gets married to the lady. A child has been born. But God is kind to speak into every situation. And he sends to David this man, Nathan the prophet, Nathan comes in, and he's a good storyteller. And he tells David this particular story about a, about a rich man who had hundreds of sheep, but he also had an impoverished neighbor. And when visitors came to the rich man's house, instead of taking one of his hundreds, he climbed over the fence, and he took that one sheep, that one ewe that belonged to his neighbor, and slaughtered it instead for his guests. Now David, as Cain, acted like judge in the land, and he's outraged at the sense of injustice in this particular story. And he starts to shout about the types of punishments that should be doled out to such a culprit. Only to have Nathan turn around and point the finger at David and say, David, you are that man. And all of a sudden, like an avalanche, the reality of what David had done all those months ago came crashing down upon him. His 
guilt that had been mingling and hunting him for these 12 months suddenly came together to help him to see of himself that he was a sinner in desperate need for God's action on his life. And it's in that context of finally realizing the nature of his sinful condition before God that David pens for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Psalm 51. Let me read it to you. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, According unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inner parts And in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, thy God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord. Open thou my lips, and my mouth shall slew forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God. Thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Sion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Let's take a moment and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge how often we come to your word and find it indeed to be a light upon our path. And how so often that torch has an ability to find its way into the very depths of our heart 
and to expose the carnality, the hardness, the sin that remains. And we pray, Lord, that this light would would shine into our hearts and expose those areas that need to be confessed before your throne. We ask, Lord, that you would give us in these moments a true sense of who we are, that we may see the wonder and the beauty and our need for Jesus all the brighter. We pray that each of us would taste and see and know that you are good. We pray that you would help us to see our need for Jesus and to treasure him more. We pray, Lord, indeed, that you would speak to each and every one, to the one who knows and loves you and needs to be encouraged on their pilgrimage, and also for the one who as yet is in darkness. And we pray, Lord, that the light of the gospel would shine into their mind and into their heart this evening. We know that this is a work that no man can do, and so we plead with you and ask, Lord, that you would work amongst us for your pleasure and for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as we carry out this spiritual health check, the first thing I want us to notice from the text this evening is your diagnosis. What is the condition that we are suffering from? Remember the story that the subtext at the beginning of this psalm uh, uh, paints for us. Nathan has just come in to David to confront him with the reality of his condition. Just like a doctor that's trying to maybe tell the patient that they are suffering from a fatal condition, Nathan has come in to David to tell him about the disease that has been destroying his life. And David's awareness brought to him by the words of Nathan, brings forth a a fast vocabulary to describe the nature of sin that David finds as he looks into his heart. And so David is not suffering from an illness. He's not suffering from a war injury. He's not got some sort of fever. Rather, he's come to that point where he realizes that his greatest problem lies at the very center of his being. His greatest problem is his own sin. And so David uses that fast vocabulary to paint a picture of what the sin is that he finds as he looks into his heart. And as you look into your heart this evening, I want you to see that the language that David employs is language that can be employed to describe the condition of your heart outside of God's grace. The first word we see in the text there is in verse 1. That word, transgression. Look at what it says, blot out my transgressions. The Hebrew word here that we get this English word transgression from, it means to cross a line with the intention that this is serious rebellion. You think of the sign, keep off the grass, and that determined, deliberate effort after reading the sign to step onto the grass. That's our word. In the annals of Julius Caesar, Caesar, or Julius Caesar, he was north of the river, river Rubicon. He was a general looking after the vast territory north of that river. But as friction developed between him and the Roman Senate, there was a moment whenever war was going to be declared. He was going to go against the Senate. And in his annals, he talks about how he crossed the river Rubicon. He was moving into a territory he had not been assigned. And as such, he was declaring war against that legislative body in Rome. And in his annals, Caesar writes about how he crossed that river, and he crossed it crying out, the die has been cast. There was a defiance, a deliberate determination, a a, a deep act of the will. Well, that's our word, transgression. This is exactly what we have done with God. We've come to the boundary of His moral law. 
and with determination stepped over it. As a result, like Caesar, we've declared war against God. We need to understand, when it comes to sin, this word sin is not merely something that describes an accident that took place, an impersonal, weak mistake that we made. Rather, we need to be honest. And we need to see what the Bible says. When we sin, we are not merely doing something naughty, breaking an impersonal rule, but rather we are rebelling against an almighty and a just sovereign. Lewis has said, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel that needs to lay down his arms. Friends, we're rebels against God. The second word we find in our text is there in verse 2. Did you see it? The, the, the word iniquity. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. This word means perversion. It, it refers to the depravity or the twistedness of our nature. David's talking about his attraction here. He's saying that he is drawn towards forbidden things. What he's saying here is, just as much as blood is part of our body, so sin is part of David's being. It fills him. It draws him. He's got an impulse towards wrongdoing. You see the same idea there in verse 5 in that, that free is shaped in iniquity. The idea is the baby that's being formed in the womb. And that child, you know the way we rock the baby in our arms and we look down at them and we have in our head this idea of them being so sweet and so innocent. What David is saying is that child is not innocent. Rather, even as he was formed in his mother's womb, there was something corrupt about him. There was something off-center. There was something twisted about his nature. What David's saying here, it's really a declaration of just how unlike God he really is. You sometimes hear people say in our society as an excuse, I was born this way. But David would say, yes, you were. But that's the problem. You were born with a twistedness in your nature. A pull, a draw towards forbidden things. I was born with leanings and desires to oppose God and his standards. What David is saying here is every sin we commit on the outside is really a a symptom. It's a sign that there's something distorted inside. It's a sign that we're obsessed with ourselves and we've no place for the king. David's not shocked that he did something out of character. Rather, he's shocked because he's come to realize that this is his character. He's a twisted individual with a broken heart. The third word we see in our text is the word sin itself. There in verse 2. And cleanse me from my sin. That's the word that most appears in Scripture. It's the word that's most familiar to us. It's the word that simply means to fall short. To fall short. You think of the archer pulls back the bow and arrow and he releases the arrow and it flies through the air towards the bullseye. But as it flies, long before it gets to the target, it falls short and it smacks into the dirt. That falling short is the picture here. God made us to be like him. We were designed and made in the image of God, to, made to live according to his ways, made to reflect him here on earth. And sin is every moment we fall short of that perfect image bearing. 
Every moment we fall short of what God has revealed to us to, uh, to be the way we've been called to live. So transgression, iniquity, and sin. Rebels, twisted, people who fall short. And the last word is there in verse 4, the word evil. Here we get to the very center of what sin is and why it's such a problem. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Sin is not merely the wrong that we do, but rather it's the corrupt nature that we have. It's what we've been saying already. Sin that we commit is done on the outside, but it's symptomatic of something that's broken inside. What David is saying here in verse 4 is not simply that he committed adultery or that he murdered, But what he's saying here is, when he is divorced of God, if you were to lift off all of God's restraints, uh, all of God's work upon David, what would be left behind is an individual who, in and of himself, is completely evil. He is the antithesis of God. He is the opposite in character to an all-pure, holy, holy, holy God. He is evil. One early commentator says, Here David lays on himself the blame of a tainted nature instead of that of just a single fault. David is a sinner. He's a God-hater. And what he's saying here is that is why he has sinned. Because inside is broken and twisted and evil. Notice all the way through when he talks about his sin, he talks about it as well in the first person. You see that first one? It's my transgressions. In verse 2, mine iniquity and my sin. Verse 4, he says, have I sinned? David is acknowledging that he himself is by nature absent of truth and evil by nature. He's not talking in generic terms. People are bad. Humanity sins. Men and women all across this world fall short. No, for David, this is a personal thing. I have sinned. My transgressions, my iniquity have separated me from God. I know this is not a pleasant or uplifting message this evening. But this is God's Word. This is the x-ray of truth upon your heart. And what it reveals is the depth of your sickness. That apart from God's grace in your life, you're a rebel. Twist it. And you fall short of God's perfect standard. And it's not just the things that you do. Rather, it's your very core, your very nature that is evil and opposed to God. This is your diagnosis this evening. This is you. And until you realize that, until you acknowledge that you are a sinner in need of help, there's nothing that you can do to rectify this circumstance because you, in and of yourself, are lost. You're like a man standing in the hospital with his fingers in his ears singing a song to himself while the doctor tries to plead with him to listen to the condition that has developed within and the urgent need he has for emergency treatment. Here's our diagnosis, our heart disease. We are, by nature, evil, a rebellious, twisted people that forever miss the mark of God's holiness. 
The second thing I want us to see in the text are the symptoms of that condition. Every time somebody is sick, it, it manifests itself in their life in certain ways. Maybe a temperature. Maybe uh, blotches or spots over the skin. A sore throat, whatever it happens to be. That because, because there's something wrong inside, it, it shows itself in Sin works the same way. Often in our lives, there's certain ways that sin's effect is seen and felt by us as individuals. And you see that even in the text as David describes his condition. The first symptom we see there is in verse 3, he talks about his guilt. It says in verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. You remember what we said, 12 months have passed since David committed that grievous sin. But now there's a sense where everywhere he looks, he's reminded of his guilty past. As he goes to lead his army into war. As he goes for a walk on the, the rooftop of the palace again. As he spends time with his new wife Bathsheba. As he hears his servants whisperings. He wonders, are they talking about me? Everywhere David looked, he saw the ghost of Uriah the Hittite, the ghost of his guilty past. And that very often is the same for many of us. Past sin can echo in our memory. And sometimes, like there was for David, it can come with a delay. It can take time before that guilt finally catches up with us. But very often it does. And sometimes that guilt can be a horrible thing. It can cause us anxiety. It can cause us stress, loss of appetite, sleepless nights. But it can also be the tool that God uses to make us crave after him and his forgiveness. A lot of people sin and don't feel guilt. They, they know that they're not perfect, but they justify their behavior But when real guilt comes, it can be a great tool, a great blessing if it forces us to our knees before God. The second symptom we see here in the text is that sense of dirtiness. Look at the language that's being used throughout the psalm. In verses 1 and 9, you have the word blot out there in verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Verse 9, blot out all mine iniquity. And then in verses 2 and verse 7, he talks about washing and cleansing. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David uses language here, here, here that implies the need to, to, to be cleansed, to have dirt removed from us. That word blot out, it's the word that would have been used of a piece of parchment when a mistake was made. They didn't use a, a rubber to remove the mistake so they could write over it. Rather, what they had to do was to take a scalpel and they would scratch the mistake on the parchment. They would scratch away a thin layer of that leather parchment in order that it would be cleansed, completely removed, and in its place, new text could be written. Uh, the language they're used with washing is, is that intense launderer's language. Bleaching, deep, deep cleansing is being talked about here. The idea is that as David looks at his life, he sees how deep into the fabric of his being the the sin sits, and he feels, feels filthy and dirty, and he's crying out to God, God, bleach me clean. I don't know if you've ever done something wrong, and you're, you, you dwell on that wrong, and what you did, and how you behaved, and things progress past that sense of guilt to this deep sense of dirtiness. That that, that Lady Macbeth need to wash the hands and never being able to remove the defilement. 
long before Shakespeare. David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks uh, in such clear language about that deep sense of dirtiness that the individual can feel. You see as well that sense of brokenness. Look at verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. David has a sense of complete brokenness here. The relationship he once enjoyed with God has been crushed by his wrongdoing. The joy that he once found in that relationship that he had with God has been deflated by this sense of brokenness. And David compares the agony of loss that he feels to the the physical pain of bones being crushed. It's it's not an easy thing. It's a strong language. It's agony language to, to describe the sense of loss that he feels. It's amazing how the individual in sin so often thinks they will find joy and happiness in their sin. David tells us, doesn't he? Instead of joy and happiness, so often what is found is that deep, despairing sense of brokenness. And then the last symptom. Guilt, dirtiness, brokenness. And the most serious that sense of being in danger. Look at verse 4. Against thee, the only have I sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Here David expresses his biggest fear. His sin is against God. And he's no defense. He knows God is just. God always does what is right. And that means David must be punished. And so he cries out in verse 9, hide thy face from my sins. You know that picture of the criminals coming out of the court after being found guilty and they're escorted to the car and they pull their hood or their coat up over their head. They want to hide their face away. They they want to hide their guilt away. And David wants to do the same because of the shame that he feels before God. And yet the Psalms are wonderfully honest. And so often, even within a Psalm, you find a conflict of emotion because that's human. We so often have a conflict of emotion. And here David wants to hide away from God. But look at verse 11. At exactly the same moment, he cries out, But cast me not away from thy presence. You see, you see the contrast? He wants to hide away in shame from God, and yet he knows he needs to be before God. He knows it's only God and God's presence that can help and speak into the need of this moment. In this prayer, David is confronted with the inescapable reality of the God who condemns him. And yet those invisible cords of God still insist in drawing David close. It's amazing this particular psalm, isn't it? Given the crimes that David committed, he doesn't ever mention any particular reference to adultery with Bathsheba or the murder of Uriah. In fact, if it wasn't for the footnote that we mentioned at the beginning of the psalm, we would only be able to guess that this is the particular crime that David is repenting of. And the reality is, he did sin against Bathsheba. And he did sin against Uriah. And he even, we could say, sinned against the nation of Israel that he was meant to be an example to, and to lead, and to guide, and to shepherd. And yet verse 4 makes clear, David's sin was first and foremost against God. And such an enormous thing is it that any individual would sin 
against the holy, all-seeing God. Such an enormous offense and such a fearful guilt that at all human levels of that sin peel into insignificance compared to that fact that against him have I sinned and done what is evil in his sight. Friend, you sinned. Not just David, you sinned against the holy, all-seeing God, the one who judges perfectly. And you don't have a chance. You're like a field mouse shaking his fist at the giant about to squash him. Calvin has said, we will never seriously apply to God for pardon until we have obtained such a view of our sins as it inspires us with fear. And your sin is against Almighty God. And what about the symptoms? Have they started to work in your life? Do you feel guilt? That sense of defilement or brokenness? That sense of danger as you contemplate standing before that holy, all-seeing God? Have you seen the symptoms? And can you agree with the diagnosis? The last thing I want us to do this evening as we come to an end is to see the cure as well. If you're aware of the heart disease that is ultimately killing your life and condemning you to death, then listen carefully for the cure. What cure could sort out such a mess? Well, what can David do to resolve the gulf that has emerged between him and God? What can he do to get rid of that sense of guilt, of brokenness that he is experiencing? Well, nothing. He can do nothing. There's nothing that David can do. And there's nothing that David can offer. He needs someone else to act on his behalf. Look at the language. Again, he keeps referring to washing and cleansing in verse 2 and hyssop in verse 7. He's using all the way through this psalm sacrificial language because ultimately what David needed was a sacrifice, something or someone to pay the debt that he owed. But David is a smart man. He's read God's word every day. That was part of his job as king. So he's already thought about this. But but he's so aware of the extent of his sin and how deep into the fabric of his being that sin goes. Look at verse 16. Look at his reasoning. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. David knows that there is no sacrifice he can bring. In fact, there was no sacrifice in the whole Old Testament law that would cleanse him. By itself, it would never be enough. He knows his sin is so far removed from who God is that it cannot merely be forgiven by the death of an insignificant and unaware animal. In fact, though there were many sacrifices offered in the Old Testament, there was no sacrifice for adultery. There was no prescribed sacrifice for murder. And those individuals were to be stoned to death. And so for David, it's hopeless. And yet, did you see the second half of the psalm? David, this man who's in such a hopeless state, he moves forward not in fear but with confident hope. Look at the prayer that finishes off 
the psalm of rededicated service. In verse 18, he prays for Zion, the place that God entrusted him to rule. In other words, he's now able to get up and go again in his God-given duty of praying and leading the people. His sin will uh, have effects and and, uh, his sin has hindered him to the present, but he will once again be able to serve again. He prays that the walls of Jerusalem would be built up. That's what successful kings did. They built up the defenses of the city. In verse 19, it says, Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous, with burnt offerings, and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Here we see that one that David Remember, in verse 9, wanted to hide away from? Now he anticipates coming before boldly and worshiping. And then look at verse 13. It says, Then I will teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted unto thee. In other words, things aren't going to go back simply to the way they are. That's not his hope. Rather, David's confidence that he's is confident that he's going to experience such a forgiveness that he's going to be able to be a testimony to others. He's going to have something to teach other people who are in distress because of their sin. So he's exercising his God-given role again. He's worshiping again. He becomes a permanent testimony to others of the grace of God in his life. You see the change from the start to the end of the psalm. It was tear-stained at the start, and now it's full of smiling hope. Hi. Why? The very simple answer is David is confident that he will be forgiven. Now, now how could David, this sinner, who deserves only punishment, how could he have the assurance that God would forgive him? Spurgeon has said of Psalm 51, this is a preposterous prayer to pray anywhere but at the throne of God. If David were not conscious of the divine mercy, he would surely have broken down under the weight of guilt and dirtiness and brokenness that he was feeling. But instead, he knows the character of God. Remember, he said he would read the the Torah, he would read the first five books of the Bible every day as part of his job. As he read that book, he would have come across many passages like Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. David has confidence because he knows the character of God revealed to him in Scripture was one who could act, though David could do nothing to help himself. And it's God's promise of God's comfort, of God's provision, of God's character that David entrusts himself to. David in this psalm is bold beyond words. He knows there's no sacrifice he can offer. There's no sacrifice in the whole Old Testament that would satisfy. And yet he looks to God knowing God will provide that sacrifice by which he can be forgiven. And David, in a sense, is trusting that God will do what David cannot. He will provide a sacrifice that would actually meet the standard. David, like everybody else who truly realizes the nature of his sin, is crying out to God, God, do it to someone else, but don't do it to me. God, pour that punishment on another, but please spare me. And although in the psalm we may only hear David's cry for mercy and the hope that he leaves with, we know how that provision was made through the rest of Scripture. 
David said, God, do it to someone else, but don't do it to me. And God said, okay, David. And he sent his son who, who lived that perfect life, who was the son with whom God was well pleased and yet died that sacrificial death, the one that we can read about through the rest of Scripture that was adequate to deal with sin. You think of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5 says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The Lord was provided to deal with our transgressions, to deal with our iniquity, to deal with our sin. Though we were evil, he was perfect, and he stood in our place that we could experience at the core of our being true spiritual healing. David had to throw himself upon the mercy of God, that hope that God would provide an acceptable sacrifice. But today we have a far greater privilege than David. We know how that sacrifice was provided. It came through the form of Jesus Christ, the only beloved Son of God, who lived that life that none of us could and died that sacrificial death God provided in Jesus Christ that one by which we could be forgiven. He came and lived that perfect life. He was rejected. He was scorned. He was beaten. He was laughed at and he was killed. The guiltless Son of God was punished for the guilty. That innocent Son of God was willing to suffer that which in the psalm made David tremble. The perfect Lamb of God was punished on the cross that we could experience the privileges of being children of the living God. What stage are you at tonight? Are you aware of the sin in your life? Maybe you're suffering from some of those symptoms that we talked about for the wrong that you've done in the past. If so, cry out to God like David for mercy. The Lord says, all who come to me, I will in no way cast out. And in him is found forgiveness. And yet many of us in this room claim to know him and love him. Claim to be Christians. There's a temptation, isn't there, on a Sunday night to come out to attend? And to let the challenge of the gospel simply wash over our heads. Christian, consider David. Do you know what the Bible said of him years before? He was a man after God's own heart. In other words, he was a believer. He was in relationship with God. And yet he found himself where he'd been so calloused by his sin. He went 12 months of turning up at the temple, of doing his work in the palace, of going through all of the normal box-ticking exercises with a dead, callous, cold heart. Spurgeon said the Christian must never leave off repenting, for I fear he never leaves off sinning. Christian, tonight, what in your life needs to be repented of? As you look into your own heart, are you plagued with guilt or defilement? Are you only too aware of how evil you can be? Then, like each of us, like all of us, cry out to the God who is merciful, who loved you enough to provide his Son it's the perfect, necessary sacrifice. And experience once more that grace of God. And have, as David says, the joy of your salvation restored to you. Experiencing, experience afresh that joy of once more experiencing His ever-flowing grace. 
And if you've never experienced that grace at all, the Bible's diagnosis of you is clear. You are by nature a rebellious, twisted sinner who falls short, who is evil by nature. And you are in danger because you have declared war against an all-holy God. And yet, God's grace extends to you. And you too can cry out with David, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. And you can know that that sacrifice in the form of Jesus Christ, the purchase David's forgiveness, is also more than sufficient to purchase yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that the Word knows us. And it knows us at a level beyond that which any other man or woman can. It knows the very depth and core of our being. And Lord, there's those parts of our life that we don't want anyone to see. That that horrify ourselves when we dwell upon it. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you, the God who knows all, who sees all, who understands more than we even do, the depth of sin and its infestation in our life, yet hold out that hand of grace and mercy to us. And declare to us that all who come to you, you will in no way cast out. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy. And we pray that all tonight would know the sweetness of that taste. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We want to sing a song to close our service. Come thou find a hymn really about the, the nature of our wandering hearts and the, the cry for God to overrule and God to hold us close. Let's stand and close our service with the singing of this hymn and afterwards I'll pronounce a benediction.